Heavenly Father, this morning we do rejoice with saints of old. We rejoice with heavenly hosts, even as we meditate on the birth of Jesus Christ. Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus, who will save his people from their sins. Heavenly Father, we rejoice in the birth of Jesus Christ because we recognize that the birth of Jesus Christ, the incarnation, is the very heart of the gospel itself. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. We rejoice in that love. We rejoice in that gift, Heavenly Father. We pray that even this morning as we work our way through these passages, from Genesis all the way through Malachi, that you would be lifted high. That we would see the great power, the great wisdom, the great love of our God who set forth a plan in eternity past and in his great wisdom and power has brought it to be. Working all things for our good and for your glory. Lord, be glorified even this morning. Encourage our hearts with your great love. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Love can be a funny thing. It often comes completely unexpected, though somewhat anticipated. I remember even as a young man, I wasn't... You know, we, we always tease little girls about like planning their weddings and stuff. You know, I didn't go that far, but I always did look forward to getting married, to falling in love as a young man. It was something I longed for, something I looked forward to, but I recognized that it had to be in the right timing. Love and marriage are those things that work best in the right time. Many love stories begin long before love even shows up. It began with friendship, an acquaintance, a get-together, whatever it is. And over the course of time, you grow from acquaintances to good friends. You enjoy spending time together. You realize that you have a lot in common. You enjoy many of the same things. Over the course of time, as you start to spend time with this person that you enjoy spending time with, questions start to cross your mind. Quiet questions, silent questions that you do not speak yet. You don't really even meditate on them, but they're there. Could this be something more? Could this be going somewhere? But you leave them unanswered and unspoken. There's a growing excitement. As these, unexpo these unspoken questions begin to grow in your mind until they become a whisper. A whisper that shows up and Maybe little flirtatious gifts. Flirts. Things that clearly indicate that, that friendship is moving beyond friendship. Soon, you and this other person who's become significant, significant other, you begin to start whispering to each other. Is something happening here? I might start having some feelings. Do you have those feelings? It's just between the two of you. It hasn't spread out yet, but, but it's there. There's a conversation happened. There's something under the surface that is going on. 
The word love is not used yet. But it's clear that something's happening. It isn't long before that whisper between the two of you grows into a rumble with those around you. They start to notice there's something going on here. More than friendship. Soon, this rumbling becomes outright spoken. I love you. Yes, we love each other. Yes, we care. This clearly moved from the realm of friendship and love is in the air. It is here. And finally, there's an ultimate proclamation of love for all to hear at the wedding altar as you proclaim your love and your vows for the rest of your lives. There's no more holding it in. What began as a whisper progresses to a proclamation. There's growing anticipation in the couple and in those around them, excitement that that grows and that builds until the wedding day finally arrives. I use the illustration of, of love. I could have used many illustrations. But our theme for Christmas this year is a growing anticipation. Something that that grows from a a hint, a whisper, to a proclamation at the birth of Jesus Christ. As the angels fill the sky and proclaim to all who will hear the shepherds in the field, Jesus Christ is born today. Peace on earth, good news to men. You see, there's a string throughout all of Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, And that string is Jesus Christ. He runs through the entire Bible. I don't know if you've ever had a string on your clothes and you kind of pull on it to see where it ends. Hopefully it's not a string that pulls your entire clothes apart, right? There's a string that runs through Scripture, and we're going to follow that string this morning. See, Christmas falls on a Sunday this year. So I want to take the month of December building up to that Christmas day on Sunday. I want to trace the anticipation of the birth of Jesus Christ even as our own anticipation grows for Christmas throughout this month. So as I mentioned, this year's Christmas series is called The Growing Anticipation of Christmas. And I plan, Lord willing, this morning to trace the anticipation of Jesus' birth through the Old Testament. You may have noticed that several of our songs this morning, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, O Come, Thou Long Expected, uh, the long-expected Jesus. They, they weren't maybe the, the great and, and hope-filled and loud and joyful Christmas songs that we're used to singing. Because I want to start slow this morning. I want to start with anticipation. I want to long with the saints of old for Jesus to come. So we'll trace that through the Old Testament this morning. Lord willing, next week and the weeks to follow then, we'll pick up in Luke 1. And we'll follow from Luke 1 until Luke 2 on Christmas morning, tracing the announcement and the birth of John the Baptist and Jesus Christ as that whisper from the Old Testament starts to turn into a rumble and then a spoken hope and then a proclamation working our way through Luke. I pray this will be an exciting series. I pray that it will help to add context and meaning to, to Christmas as we rejoice in what God has done together. But before we can get to Christmas, we have to go all the way back 
I notice that there's this string, or as some theologians call it, a crimson cord that runs through Scripture. So I want to back all the way up to Genesis, to the Garden of Eden. Genesis 3.15, as we begin our journey. As you're turning there, if you have not already, there are conservatively, very conservatively, I went with the most conservative number I can find, but most conservative, there are at least 300 prophecies that Jesus fulfilled during his earthly life and ministry. Obviously this morning, we're not going to touch on every single one of those in the Old Testament. We'd be here all morning, all day, maybe all week. But I've picked several to trace as we work our way through the Old Testament, moving towards the hope of Christmas. And so we're going to start here, Genesis 3.15. Have your Bibles with you. We're going to be turning to several passages this morning as we work our way through this. It'll be a little bit different than what we're probably used to. And as far as a sermon, we'll be looking at several passages. But Lord willing, it'll be encouraging and it'll be good for us. So we start first with Genesis 3.15. It's a passage that says this. And I will put enmity between you and the woman. Between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. It's kind of an odd verse to start in. But do you know the context of Genesis 3.15? What's going on here in Genesis 3? Well, if you know the Bible well, you probably know in Genesis 1 and 2, you have the creation of the earth. Creation of of the heavens and the earth as God creates and it is good. God creates man and woman and he, he places them in the garden. He gives them this creation mandate to go, to be fruitful, to multiply, to rule over the earth. But we know the story, do we not? It's not long before the fall of man. Before Satan comes and he tempts and Right away, man falls. So Genesis 3.15 comes in the immediate aftermath of the fall of man. In fact, it's what is often called by theologians the proto-evangelium. It's simply a fancy word that means the first gospel. The first proclamation of the gospel. It comes in the immediate aftermath of the fall of man, even as I already mentioned, as Adam and Eve have disobeyed God. They've eaten the fruit, the one fruit that they were commanded not to eat, and they have plunged mankind into sin and its consequence, death. And yet it's here in the immediate consequence that we find the first glimmer of hope. The first mention of a promise of salvation. The first hint of of Christmas. The good news of Genesis 3.15 is that the love of God is greater than the unfaithfulness of man. The good news of Genesis 3.15 is that the power of God is greater than the sinfulness of man. It is greater than the power of death. What man has destroyed, God will restore. Genesis 3.15 is a glorious promise. It's a promise of defeat for the serpent and deliverance for man. You see, the serpent thinks that he has won. 
But Genesis 3.15 is a promise that there is one coming who will deliver a death blow to the serpent and to his followers. Who is this one? When will he come? Genesis 3.15 is a promise, but there's few details here. What do we know is that this victor will be human. The seed of woman that he will conquer. He will deliver a death blow to the devil and his followers. But beyond these basic details, Genesis 3.15 really doesn't give us much. But a promise. It gives hope. A promise whose details will be further filled out throughout the rest of the Old Testament. So this morning, I want you to move forward with me from this first promise of Genesis 3.15 that there is a seed coming who will crush the head of the serpent. Move with me, if you will, to Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3. I have 1 to 9 on the screen. We're really going to focus on verses 1 to 3, but the entire passage goes through verse 9. We have here is the Abrahamic covenant. Now the Lord had said to Abraham, get out of your country, from your family, from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I'll make you a great nation. I'll bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Did you know that between Genesis 1 and Genesis 12, between Adam and Abraham, there are 2,000 years? As we jump to Genesis 12, we are jumping 2,000 years from that first promise in Genesis 3.15. Generations have come and gone. Many mighty warriors have risen up and accomplished great things, and yet this promised seed of Genesis 3.15 has not yet come. In fact, not only has he not come, but by Genesis 6, the corruption of man is so great on the face of the earth that every intention of his heart is only wickedness, continually. The earth is full of corruption and violence. And it's there in Genesis 6 that God sends a flood, saving mankind through the family of Noah. The promise still stands. In Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3, we come to Abraham and the Abrahamic covenant. It's a promise to a specific family that will bless the whole world. It builds on the promise of Genesis 3.15, where we have the promise of a seed who will conquer. And now through Abraham, we have a specific family through which this seed will come. But there's a problem. We know the story, do we not? As God comes to Abraham, Abraham is 75 years old. And he has no children. Maybe, it's been 2,000 years, maybe God has changed his plan. Maybe he's updated it to fit the times. Do you think that's the case? No. God's faithful. What God says, God does. We know that's not the case. 
In fact, we know the story, do we not? Even when God calls Abraham at 75 years and says, I will give you a, a great nation. I will bless the world through you. At 75 years old, it's not even there at 75 years old that then God miraculously gives Abraham a child. In fact, Abraham and Sarah have to trust God for 25 more years. Until at 100 years old. In God's perfect timing, he provides Isaac through Sarah. The promise still stands. Jump ahead with me, if you will, to Genesis 49, verses 8 to 12. Genesis 49, verses 8 to 12. We are now jumping another 250 years or so. As we come to this passage, we're at the end of Isaac's son's life, Jacob, Isaac's son. We're at the end of his life as he blesses his sons. And, and in this passage, he blesses Judah. And he says, Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down. He lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who shall rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people, binding his donkey to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washed his garments in wine, his clothes in the blood of grapes, his eyes are darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. It might seem like an odd passage. But here in Genesis 49, 8-12, we find the prophetic blessing of Judah. The promised seed of Genesis 3:15 through the family of Abraham in Genesis 12, 1-3, will come from the line of Judah. He is here called Shiloh. He'll be a great king. He will have great prosperity. In fact, one commentator notes, in these words... Jacob predicts the great empire of David and the greater kingdom of Christ, the second David. This sets the tone for the chief aspect of messianic expectation in the Old Testament. The way that Abraham's blessing will come to the Gentiles will be by the ultimate heir of David reigning and incorporating the Gentiles into his benevolent empire. God's plan marches on. The seed is still coming. His promises still stand through Abraham, through Judah. Jump with me, if you will, to 2 Samuel 7, verses 8 to 16. Now we come to that great descendant of Judah that we just talked about, David. And here in 2 Samuel 7, we have the Davidic covenant building on the promises of Genesis 3, 15, Genesis 12, 1 to 3, and Genesis 49, 8 to 12. It says this, now therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep to be ruler over my people, over Israel. I've been with you wherever you have gone. I've cut off all your enemies from before you and have made you a great name, like the name of the great men who are, in earth, who are on the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel. I will plant them 
They may dwell in the place of their own and move no more. Nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them any more, as previously since the time that I commanded judges over you, over my people Israel, and have caused you to rest from all your enemies. Also the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your body. I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. Now we come to the Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel 7. Carrying on from the initial promise of Genesis 3.15, following it through the family of Abraham, through the line of Judah, This promised royal seed who will crush the head of the serpent and bless the Lord will come through the line of the great king, David. Here in this promise, the Lord promises David some immediate things, including a great name. He promises him victory over his enemies. But looking forward, the Lord promises David a descendant who will rule a kingdom that will be established forever. The Lord blesses the reign of David's son, Solomon. The Lord establishes him as he promises here. And yet this promise looks even beyond Solomon to a greater seed who will rule a greater kingdom. In fact, it is on this Davidic covenant that much of the rest of the prophecies of the Old Testament of Jesus Christ are based. If you were to go through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and look at the birth of Jesus Christ, you'd see a lot of references back to David, back to this passage. The Davidic covenant is further fleshed out as as we see the greatness of this promised seed in the line of David in passages such as Psalm 2, Psalm 45, Psalm 110, many others. Psalms, I'd encourage you, go back and look at those. See the promises of God through David. It's clear that God is doing something great. So already just from Genesis through 2 Samuel, our vision has grown from a death blow to the serpent, to the blessing of the nations, and now an eternal kingdom of the son of David. But who is this one? We know from whence he's coming, what family he will come out of. We know that he will rule. We know his kingdom will be established forever. We know he will deliver a death blow. But turn with me, if you will, to Isaiah 7, 14. Which says this, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. We're now moving ahead approximately 300 years in history. Ahaz, a wicked king of the southern kingdom of Judah, is facing attack from the combined forces of Reza, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the king of the northern kingdom of Israel. 
Ahaz is overcome by fear. And yet in this passage, the Lord sends Isaiah to comfort Ahaz and to assure him that these enemies will not prevail against him. The Lord offers Ahaz a sign. In fact, he invites Ahaz, ask of me a sign as deep as Sheol or as high as the heavens. Clearly, the implication here is that there is nothing too great for God. Ask of me what the greatest thing that your mind can imagine. I can do it. I am God. The sign is meant to be a testimony of God's great saving purpose for his people. A reminder that God has not forgotten. A reminder that God has not abandoned his people. A reminder that God has not moved on from his promise, but he will do whatever is possible, whatever is needed to fulfill his word because he is faithful. But remarkably, Ahaz refuses to ask for a sign. See, Ahaz, like the people that he represents, the people of Judah, refuses to believe. Yet despite his stubbornness, the Lord puts forth a sign anyway, a great and mysterious sign. A virgin shall conceive, and her offspring will be called Emmanuel, which we know means God with us. It is indeed a remarkable, unbelievable sign. It's a sign that looks far into the future, proclaiming the extreme lengths to which God will go to fulfill his promise and to save his people. I want to pause here. I'm trying not, it's hard, but I'm trying not to jump to the fulfillment of these prophecies. I just want to walk through and see the prophecies to build our anticipation. But the virgin birth is a key component of the Christmas story. It's really a key component of the gospel itself. So I think it's important for us to pause here and to note that the virgin birth is not merely a novelty that the Lord thought up just to make Jesus' birth unique. This will be neat. The virgin birth is the fulfillment of prophecy. Not just that, it is the proclamation of the love of God and the great things that he can do and will do in order to save his people. The virgin birth is a proclamation. God can do anything. The virgin birth is both theologically, Christologically important, but it is practically encouraging. This coming serpent slayer truly is the seed of the woman. Jump with me, if you will, just a few chapters over to Isaiah 9, verses 6 to 7. A well-known passage. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. 
Isaiah 9, verses 6 to 7, really expounds upon the promised virgin-born child, Emmanuel, of Isaiah 7, 14. This passage is a glorious comfort to a people that are so often hopeless and helpless. This virgin-born king, this promised seed going all the way back to Genesis 3, 15, Unlike so many of the Davidic kings that these people have known, he will be wise and powerful. He'll be a powerful warrior who expands the kingdom, fulfills the promises of God, but he will not only be a warrior king, he'll be a good king, a shepherd. He will rule his kingdom as a father with compassionate care. He'll be a king who brings peace. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom marked by justice and righteousness. What a beautiful picture. What great hope. The king is coming. Jump with me, if you will, to Isaiah 40, verses 3 to 5. To the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted. And every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight. And the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Isaiah 40 verses 3 to 5 looks forward to a forerunner. One who will come before this king like a herald to prepare the way. Think even of our president. Whenever he's going somewhere to speak, you have the secret service who go before him, who make sure that, that everything is good, everything's ready to go, everything is clear. They, they make sure that he is safe. They prepare the way so that when he shows up, everything's ready to go. There's no, nothing in the way that keeps him from getting to where he needs to go. No dangers. There is likewise coming a forerunner before this seed, this king, the promised Messiah, Emmanuel, the son of David. But it's more than just a promise of a forerunner. This passage is a promise that there is nothing that can stand in the way of what God is doing in his plan to save his people. There's nothing. There is no mountain and no valley that can keep him from doing what he has said. He's coming. So be prepared. This passage, like John's ministry, as we'll see in a few coming weeks, it's a call to repentance, a call to prepare. He is coming. God has not forgotten the promise of Genesis 3.15. He's not forgotten his promise to Abraham. His promise through Judah. His promise to David. His promise to Ahaz. He's coming. Now turn with me, if you will, over to Micah 5, verses 2 to 5.
Micah 5, verses 2 to 5. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. Therefore he shall give them up until the time that she who is in labor has given birth, and the remnant of his brethren shall return to the children of Israel. He shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. They shall abide. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and this one shall be peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land, and when he treads in our palaces, then we will rise against him, seven shepherds and eight princely men. Micah 5, verses 2 to 5, reveals where this promised seed, a Messiah, Emmanuel, will be born. Like David, he will be from the small, yet historically significant town of Bethlehem. Bethlehem is a small town just south of Jerusalem, six or seven miles. It's really a remarkable prophecy, remarkably precise, given the fact that Micah is a contemporary of Isaiah in the 700s B.C., 700 years before Christ's birth. Specifically, naming the place where he'll be born. But there's another statement in this passage that's even more shocking. See, Micah 5.2 not only mentions where Jesus will be born, Micah 5.2 mentions the incarnation itself. This one truly is Emmanuel, God with us. It explicitly states that this one who is coming is one whose going forth are from of old, from everlasting, or from ancient times. That last phrase there, from ancient times, points really back to the historical significance of the birth of this one. A promise looking back at least to the Davidic covenant. This is the one who was promised a long time ago. But that phrase before that, whose goings from are from of old, that looks beyond that to eternity past. That is a statement that this one can be none other than God himself. What a remarkable prophecy. This one who will crush the head of the serpent promised in Genesis 3.15 at the fall of man is none other than God himself. God will take flesh and be born of a virgin. God will have his heel bruised so that I might go free. God will come for me. Turn with me now, if you will, to Daniel 9, verses 20 to 26. The concept of Micah 5 was difficult to believe without the context that we have looking back. I mean, put yourself in the, in the place of an Israelite, of someone from Judah thinking through that. How can God do that? God wouldn't do that. He wouldn't lower himself. But that's what the passage says. Daniel 9, we don't typically think of this as a Christmas passage. 
It's the passage in Daniel, uh, the, Daniel 70 years. We just went over this a few, year, a few uh, months ago. In Daniel 9, verses 20 26, while I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, Oh, Daniel, I have now come unto you to give you insights and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out. I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for sixty-two weeks it shall be built again with squares and moats, but in a troubled time. And after the sixty-two weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. The people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary and shall, and end shall come with a flood. To the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. Daniel 9 is a remarkable chapter that includes an incredibly detailed timeline of what God will do. You think Micah 5 is amazing telling you where Jesus will be born? This passage tells you when he will be born. And the remarkable thing of Daniel 9 is that it comes in the midst of captivity. Is there any time more hopeless? God's people have been carried off. They've been defeated. All that they knew has been destroyed. The land that God gave them has been taken. They're strangers in a foreign land. And yet Gabriel comes to Daniel. Tell him that God has not forgotten. God has not lost control. The promises still stand. He is still coming. Daniel 9, verses 1 to 19, it finds Daniel pouring out his soul to the Lord in prayer. It's a remarkable passage. Daniel does not question God. Rather, in humble submission, he praises the Lord and confesses the unfaithfulness of his people of Israel and of Judah and even of his own heart. He prays for deliverance in this passage, not because God has been unjust or because the people have suffered enough and deserve to be set free. He prays for deliverance because of who God is. It's really a remarkable passage. If you go back and read Daniel 9, verses 1 to 19, it almost sounds like something from a New Testament epistle. In Daniel 9, verses 20 to 27, Gabriel now is sent to show Daniel that God has heard his prayer. God will deliver his people. God's promises will be fulfilled. Here we find the 70 weeks of Daniel. Gabriel shows Daniel that God will deliver his people from exile, and then that's not the end. But from that point, it begins the restoration of Judah and the process that will bring salvation and culminate in the end of the age. God's plan is still being fulfilled. Again, I'm trying not to get into the fulfillment, but it's hard with this one not to. There's remarkable accuracy here. 
seen in Daniel 9.25. I mean, first, Gabriel foretells of Artaxerxes' decree in 444 B.C. authorizing Nehemiah to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. From this time, there will be seven weeks. In the context of, of Daniel, seven weeks is seen to be understood as seven years. E- each week is seen to be seven years. So seven weeks times seven years each is 49 years. That's the time needed to finish the restoration of Jerusalem. But it goes on. After these seven weeks, there's 62 weeks. So 62 weeks times 7 years for each week is 434 years. And when you add the 49 years of the time needed to restore Jerusalem and the 434 years, as prophesied here, according to Daniel 4, 9.25, it comes out to 483 years from the decree of Artaxerxes for Nehemiah to return and build and rebuild until Messiah the Prince. We have exact dates. 434 years. And wouldn't you know that exactly 483 years from Artaxerxes' command on March 5th, 444 B.C. takes us to March 30th, 33 A.D. The date of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Exactly. Hundreds of years in advance. As I mentioned, my goal is not to get to the fulfillment, but it's hard there not to. I just want to introduce these prophecies, the expectations that they bring. From the Old Testament perspective, we have a promise, a family, a nation, a kingdom, a city, and a timeline. But following the closing prophecy of the Old Testament in Malachi 4, a prophecy of judgment that also offers comfort and healing to his people, Malachi 4, there's over 400 years of silence. 400 years of nothing. Where is God? We read of these great deeds that he's done in the past. We read how he's kept his word. We read how his promises still stand. And yet in these 400 years, where is God? Has he forgotten? The remnant who still believes, there's a remnant who still looks for the promised seed of Genesis 3.15, their hope has not waned. At this point, it's a silent hope. It's a waiting hope, an anticipation deep within them. Is he still coming? Is he still coming? This morning, it's my desire to build some anticipation as we head into the Christmas season. I pray that this morning that you feel the desperate longing of the saints of old, those who saw their need And in desperate need, they look forward to the coming seed who will crush the head of the serpent once and for all. One who will break the curse of sin and bring salvation. What they so desperately know that they need. Brothers and sisters, the message of Christmas is the fulfillment of that hope. 
the faithfulness and great love of God who sent His only begotten Son to have His heel bruised in order to redeem an undeserving world. We started, Jordan read for us earlier this morning, Galatians 4, 4-5, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. The answer to the question that I asked at the end of Malachi, is he still coming? It is, yes, he's still coming. In the fullness of time, when God's plan has been fulfilled and everything has worked out in God's perfect timing, he's coming. Praise the Lord that Jesus came. Today, we look back to Bethlehem and joy And we look forward to his return with the surety of hope. Because he who did not spare his own son, but sent him to take on flesh and die, will he not also with him give us graciously all things? If he came once, will he not come again? We kind of find ourselves in that waiting pattern, do we not also? Just like those 400 silent years between Malachi and Matthew, we find ourselves waiting and longing and crying out, even so, come Lord Jesus. Brothers and sisters, he came once, he's coming again. He will come again. Like the saints of old, we long for Christmas. We have a different perspective than they had, but we have the same need. And we have the same sure hope. So as we follow the the cord or the string of promise that runs through the Old Testament, what we see is the greatness of our God. What we see is his love. What we see is his wisdom, his power, his grace, his patience, his faithfulness, his majesty, his glory. So as we long for Christmas, let us stand in awe and marvel at what our great God has done. To him alone be all the glory. Amen.